So I, I remember somebody talking about trying to send the real-time stream of sales transactions like to a fryer. It's like, no, 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 no. We don't want to do that. Instead, let's figure out a place that we can, um, we can collect all this data. So let's get the transaction data coming in. What is up, everyone? And thanks for tuning in. In today's episode of the Big Ideas in App Architecture podcast, we speak to Brian Chambers, who is the Chief Architect at Chick-fil-A. Brian's had an amazing career at Chick-fil-A, spanning almost 20 years, and has seen the company go from $1 billion in sales revenue to $19 billion. In this episode, we get into Brian's journey at the company and how he and his team work on technology and help make critical decisions to help Chick-fil-A scale and continue to grow. All right. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. How are you doing today? I am super stoked to have you on the podcast. Doing great, David. Yeah. Excited to be here. Uh, looking forward to chatting with you. It should be a lot of fun. So I want to say uh, I was talking to some people uh, and I was telling them, hey, I have uh, Brian Chambers, uh, you know, a chief architect at uh, Chick-fil-A jumping on the podcast and he's coming in. You know, he said yes. And they asked me, hey, will you get free Chick-fil-A by the end of it all? And I was like, I don't know. Maybe I should ask Brian that as the first question before he shines all his awesomeness, you know? Yeah, I mean, we can definitely get you like a free Chick-fil-A, like probably not forever. Um, If we we gave everybody we talked to free Chick-fil-A forever, I don't think the business would be doing very good. But uh, definitely, uh, I'll send something your way afterwards. We'll get you, uh, we'll get you something. Do you you have the Chick-fil-A one out? I have, I have the app, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm going to gift you something. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate it. I mean, I want to see what I can get out of this, you know, as much as I can. So <laughs> that's, that's the goal, right? I came prepared. <laughs> yeah, 100%. No, but, I, but yeah, I just want to break the ice with like talking about uh, that, you know, because uh, I mean, I'm uh, a big fan of Chick-fil-A. Like that's the, that we go to two uh, fast food chains, you know, as a family and Chick-fil-A is a number one spot to go. And the second one is Subway, actually. So the whole family knows the fact that I'm talking to somebody from Chick-fil-A. So it's, it's very oh, exciting. So that's awesome. Uh, and yeah. So it's well, uh, they were t-shirts after or something to send you a little thank you for uh, having me on. That'll be, be great. I'll work on that. Oh, no, I mean, even if you don't do it, I mean, I'm just stoked to have you on the podcast, man. So it's, it's yeah, awesome. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. So, so let's jump into it. Like, uh, you know, and, um, I was just researching you and we spoke, you know, last time we, uh, you know, met and we're just kind of preparing for, okay, we're going to jump on the podcast. So, You've been with Chick-fil-A for about 19 years, you know, wearing different technical hats and now you are the chief architect there. Tell me about how you started, how it all began, how you got into Chick-fil-A. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's not required to work at a Chick-fil-A restaurant to work at Chick-fil-A corporate, uh, but that is uh, part of my path. So when I was in um, college, uh, I was uh, here in Georgia. Um, I live in Metro Atlanta area and um during the summers, I would work at one of the local restaurants close to my family's house and, um, and, you know, just, uh, came to really appreciate a lot of the values of the company. Um, it's actually a really fun place to work. Um, I think it's probably many degrees more, uh, hectic and challenging today than even it was back then. But one of the requirements I always look for in a job was something that was like, I'm never going to be bored. That was my goal. I don't want to be like in a job where you just stay in there and like wait for somebody to come to you. Um, I had one of those at Best Buy one time. Um, it was super boring, but, uh, Chick-fil-A was my job after that. And Chick-fil-A was never boring. Like there was always something to do. There are always people to serve, um, the drive through, like our bagging orders on a Saturday morning in like a suburban area. It was just like super busy, uh, super engaging, really fun. And there were just like a lot of good people who worked there and were part of it. 
So uh, when I finished school, um, Chick-fil-A actually interviewed on campus uh, at the University of Georgia where I went. And uh, so I kind of followed that path of, uh, of interviewing and got a couple offers, um, accepted the Chick-fil-A one like, you know, immediately when it was uh, given. And um, I guess the rest is history. Um, I can tell you more about some of the roles I've been through and how things have changed. But that's sort of the story of how I got there, at least. That's awesome. That's awesome. Like it's it's like a dream job for somebody who's you know started way early, you know, and has an experience in the store, and now you're doing stuff for that store. And you know, it's been amazing just to hear that. Um, what what is it that excited you? The first thing, like when you joined the company immediately as as a software engineer or an architect. Initially, I think you joined as a data engineer. Uh, what was the first yeah. role you got into? Yeah. Yeah, I don't even really know what you would call it these days. So um, at the time, we were really divided in IT, which was only, I want to say about 45 people at the time. We we're really divided between like, uh, there's some infrastructure teams and there was really like a corporate uh, information system side and then a restaurant side. And so I started on the restaurant side and um, this is always a fun one. But uh, when I started, we didn't have uh, even what we came to call persistent connections to our restaurants yet, meaning they dialed in <laughs> um, a couple times a day to transmit information. So we were in like the dial up internet days when we would do support calls, we would actually have to like call the operator on the phone of the restaurant and say, Hey, can you run your daily transmission is what it was called. Like the thing that sent their financial data and things like that, or the thing they used to send their purchase orders. And you just listen while I did the little, you know, dial up internet noise. Um, I won't do that for the podcast, but you get the dial up internet noise and you'd start a ping so you could see what it actually connected. And then once it came up, you could like remote in. Um, so anyway, uh, point being is we, we had this whole restaurant side with databases that ran, um, you know, as like kind of, um, client server applications on a local, uh, machine, um, that ran in the back of the, the store, I guess edge computing, uh, before it was a thing maybe, um, yeah. and then point of sale as well. So I did a lot of work on those systems, a lot of database stuff, a lot of SQL stuff, replicating databases back to the corporate side across those dial-up connections um, using some older technologies. So that was kind of the way I started. Um, in terms of what I was excited about, like I really didn't know a lot about the technology world and what was even possible. Um, so I was probably more excited about like Chick-fil-A as a brand, um, Chick-fil-A as a, a company that treated people great, you know, had experienced great things working there and, and heard great things about the corporate side. And so I kind of just... Um, learned a lot about what was possible. I think over the first couple of years of my career, had a lot of fun with what I did, got to talk to a lot of restaurants and be close to a lot of systems that were part of what really made the business go. And then kind of, um, build on top of that and learn from there. So it's kind of a, a weird start, I guess. Um, I did a little bit of software engineering, but a lot of it was like support and, and database, like I said, so kind of a weird non-traditional, uh, start to a role, but it was really great to kind of lay a foundation where I understood like kind of how the business worked and also, you know, um, got to use technology skills as well. And that combination of the two, I think, is really critical to doing architecture well. So, you know, 19 years later, um, I think both of the th those things still like, you know, kind of serve me really well. Wow, that's awesome. I mean, it's, it's great to know like how how it all comes together, right? So I was just thinking Chick-fil-A has this amazing success story. And, you know, I recently read an article that Chick-fil-A is nearly reaching 19 billion in sales. And that's like 19 years ago. Around about the time you started, which is like a billion. So, so I was like curious to, you know, uh, understand how did this massive growth happen? And, you know, how much did, you know, modernization, uh, technology and innovation play uh, to enable uh, this growth? Because to what you were saying, like you had a really small tech shop and, and this massive growth to 19 billion, you know, in sales, you know, yeah. how did all that come together, you know? 
Yeah, we were around a billion, uh, just over a billion. They just celebrated that when I started. Um, yeah. So it's been a lot of growth, almost a billion dollars a year, basically, is what it ends up amounting to. So um, that's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, I mean, I hope anyone from Chick-fil-A that you asked that question would have a similar answer. And I think it starts with the fact that um, the model that Chick-fil-A uses uh, with having like uh, what we say local ownership of a meaningful brand. You've got an owner operator who exists in that restaurant who's actually involved in the day to day. They're not absentee owner. They care. They care about the business. They care about the team members that work there. They care about serving the customers. Um, I think that's really foundational to who Chick-fil-A is as a business. And it's really the thing that has allowed us to grow and scale the model we have while maintaining, you know, great quality and consistency of experience and things like that. Like it really comes back to that person. But, um, you know, from a technology perspective, I think over the past, probably especially like five to seven years, we've started to hit some growth inflection points that make, um, you know, getting bigger really challenging. So most of our restaurants these days are probably doing somewhere in the like, two to five X the volume that we expected them to do when they were designed and built. And so that creates a lot of challenges. If you think about capacity, um, you know, guest throughput, um, really any, any system, right? Any system will break when it's, you know, uh, potentially break at least when it's, you know, three to five X what was intended. So um, that's where technology, I think, has started to become a really big deal. Like there's really not many things that we do today in, in our business that don't have some technology element whether it's maintaining relationships with people via technology, which we're, we're all really used to these days, um, or the systems that help us operate the business. And so um, stuff like cloud computing, you know, IoT, uh, building out an edge footprint, um, you know, connecting all of our kitchen equipment, all these stories probably a lot of people have, have heard from our blog or other places. Um, a lot of those things are really things that we've had to do to employ technology to help us solve um, problems of kind of growth and scale. They're the kind of problems you want. Um, yeah, good problems. But uh, we're really, I think, leaning more and more on technology to make sure that we keep really great food quality, that we understand how well we're doing it, serving customers. I mean, obviously, digital uh, orders through the Chick-fil-A One, you know, app and ecosystem um, is becoming a huge part of our business. Third parties, you know, partners we have with uh, DoorDash or, uh, or others. So that kind of stuff, I think, has become really huge. And it's been something that's allowed us to continue to grow as opposed to, I think, maybe reaching a plateau um, at each restaurant level and then having to go with some sort of strategy where we have to keep building more and more restaurants in an area, which actually is not great for our model because we really care about you know protecting sort of the uh, area around a store for that uh, owner-operator. Um, so that goes right back to kind of full circle. I think it's really about the people and making sure those people continue to have a great, meaningful business opportunity. So technology is just a way that we're able to help them you know, keep growing, um, hopefully be a good force multiplier, and, uh, and, and keep scaling with uh, the demands that come from the customers. So we're happy to do that. It's a, it's a good challenge and, um, and the kind of problem, like I said, that we, w- we want to be wrestling with and that we want to have. Yeah. No, I mean, when you were saying, I was just thinking, right, like in response to that, like uh, you were talking about that whole experience that you're creating. And I know when I was researching, I found that, you know, the average car wait time at Chick-fil-A is about five, which is the highest in the fast food chain. And based on some of the data I found. And the average total time to serve these cars in line is 107 seconds, which is the sh- shortest when it comes <laughs> to, uh, you know, so that means Chick-fil-A has the longest line, but the shortest serving time. And this goes back to, you know, um, and maybe we'll uh, r- uh, talk about that a little bit more about what you guys do to enable that experience, you know, like edge computing and co- collecting all of that data in the IoT space. And I was hoping, you know, uh, to co- come back to that 
Uh, but uh, before we get there, I wanted to like, you know, talk to you about like your role as a chief architect, right? So you've seen this evolution within Chick-fil-A driven by growth and demand over the last, say, 19 years. Uh, and parallelly, we in the tech space have seen interesting trends, you know, that have come like cloud technologies or um, you know, open source technologies. We have had SQL to NoSQL to now distributed SQL uh, databases, container orchestration and Kubernetes, which I know you're really passionate about to serverless technology. And now we're talking about generative AI, right? So tell me more about how has Chick-fil-A gone about, um, you know, adopting some of these trends into the architecture over the 19 years? And now now that you're the, you know, chief architect also, how do you look at all of this kind of coming together as well? Yeah, it's it's a great question. Um, I think it's been a different answer at different points in time, but um, I kind of see that same inflection point where technology became really critical to the business success it also is around the same time that I think we shifted from what maybe I would call a traditional kind of legacy uh, technology mindset, like a lot of the big, um, you know, middleware platforms and not a lot of like custom software development from scratch in a programming language like Go or Java or whatever. Um, not a lot of front end development, like little bits of it. But we did a lot of buying and a lot of like big traditional enterprise middleware um, you know, type solutions. And that worked for a season. But in that time period, we're talking about call it eight years ago, um, we started to make some culture shifts in terms of how we were going to do technology. And we shifted uh, a lot towards, hey, we're going to need to be able to build our own software, you know, from scratch, deploy things into the cloud, which is just emerging, you know, around that time period. Um, a lot of those, you know, solid uh, Amazon services and such were uh, we're kind of hitting like full swing and, you know, the, the pace of innovation really picked up there on that time period. So we knew that um, to get where we were going to uh, ultimately need to go, we were going to have to build that muscle and, um, you know, start building custom things internally. And uh, when you do that, there's all kinds of stuff that you embrace uh, in the process. And so for us, like kind of the cloud, um, cloud computing, along with uh, adopting, you know, a form of DevOps. I, I know we could talk about what that is and what that means. Uh, pretty endlessly, but trying to have, you know, product focused engineering teams that were um, autonomous, didn't have uh, outside dependencies wherever possible. Um, and then we're focused on like rapid iteration, you know, agile development, getting feedback quickly, um, small features, et cetera. So we embraced that methodology. We built up a lot of software engineering first through like hiring contractors, to be honest, but over time staff, I mean, so we probably went from five or six uh, software engineers, you know, eight years ago to, I don't know, 150 or 200 plus at least that many, um, you know, contractors and partners. So quite, you know, quite small to quite uh, sizable. Um, we kind of embrace all, embrace all those things at the same time. And it sort of let us do some things that I think surprised uh, the business in terms of being able to deliver uh, some solutions rapidly or just solve some problems that either were attempted before and failed um, or just like things that didn't scale as well. So we were able to kind of, um, you know, pick the right things, I think at the right time and, uh, and let the, let that take us some places. And then, um, for me, philosophically, uh, when I think about how we look at what's new, I'd say we chart a course like that, that we believe in and that we can observe the results of, and then watch it and look for places where there's pain, where there's challenges, um, where we can iterate. And then, of course, also be watching the tech landscape and see, like, is there something that solves problems that we have? Maybe this is not our biggest problem, but it's like if we just shift over this direction, 
we're actually setting ourselves up for like the next five big things that are going to be beneficial to us. Um, so really just trying to kind of think of it as navigating. Uh, I don't think there's usually right answers in this kind of work. I think it's really what is going to work for your, um, your current situation. And so that context is super important. So I just try and keep that context front of mind and then watch that landscape, but the business one and the tech one and see what makes sense. Um, you know, and then we test a lot of things too, you know, some of it's intuition and some of it's just, Hey, let's try this out and see what kind of value it produces. And then we'll see at the end, was that a good idea? And should we scale it? Or was it a, a good idea because it was an idea, but it's not going to work. So it's shelved it or, you know, discard it or whatever. So that's kind of the way that I think we've evolved since. And that's brought us a lot of places, you know, from edge computing, IoT, um, generative AI, all the, all the stuff you mentioned. Right. So I was just curious, like you, you were mentioning you went from five developers or software engineers to 150, and now you have a very strong, you know, enterprise architect team, and then you're leading chief architects as well um, in your role and in that capacity. How do you handle, uh, you know, developers coming to you and say, well, I want to start using, say, Spark uh, to process all our data. And yeah. how do you make those decisions on a day-to-day basis as to like, what does your team kind of uh, do to handle those things? Yeah, no, that never happens. Everybody just uses exactly what we told them before. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, this is a this is a frequent uh, thing, of course. Um, so like one thing I think is super important is uh, like our architecture team is great. We have some super smart people um, with a ton of great experience, but not every great idea um, that comes to Chick-fil-A will come from our team. They will come from all over the place. They'll come from operators in field. They'll come from, you know, other engineers. They'll come from all over the place. So we know that we don't have a monopoly on good ideas and we need to um, see where, and we also aren't experiencing a lot of the pain that like a particular team might be experiencing. So we don't have a firsthand knowledge of the problem. Sometimes we may, we may understand it, but we may not be in it. So a lot of great ideas are going to come from other places, hundred percent for sure. So uh, we see this all the time and what we try to do is um, it's, it's a little bit of a art for us right now. Like, we're trying to put some more structure around like what actually would be a proof of concept. Like, Hey, we want to do a POC with, you know, this thing. Um, what does that actually mean? Like, what are you, what are you testing? You know, so sort of like scientific method, like what's your hypothesis? How are you going to test that? You know, what's going to happen at the end? What if it, what if we decide it doesn't make sense to go forward? Like you loved it, but it's not a good fit right now. Can you roll it back? What will that look like? Um, so we're, we're trying to put some more rigor around that process right now, because I think we've got, we've gotten big enough and we have enough ideas that are going all the time that we potentially could have like stuff diverging all over the place. Um, right. It wasn't as much of a problem when we were smaller because we could manage it relationally. We're having to start managing it with process a little bit more. Um, but we try and take a, uh, an approach of like, okay, let's hear out the idea. Let's see, um, you know, does it potentially make sense? Could it be um, a solution just for a team or would it be more widely applicable to the enterprise? And then, you know, it's same thing. Let's try it out. Let's see what we learn. Um, and, and kind of evaluate uh, from there. So we have like a um, innovation process internally that we use that I think is pretty good for just putting structure to things like this. It's understand, you know, what what is the problem? Um, you know, what's the nature of it? Uh, imagine, you know, what possible solutions could exist to this problem. Prototype, let's try some stuff out. Uh, and then that's kind of the pause. And then after that, we validate and then we launch. So um, we're cool with a lot of understand, imagine prototype work as long as we get to that validate stage and say, okay, does this make sense for us? Um, if it's just going to be a single product team, we don't really care as much. Um, try and give them autonomy to pick what works for them, pick the programming languages, pick the, um, you know, the infrastructure, pick as much as they can within some guardrails. Uh, but if it's going to be shared, then it needs to be, you know, cohesive. 
especially if it's stuff that potentially hits our physical restaurant, like something compute related, you know, something machine learning related. We don't want like five different edge compute solutions that are all siloed, you know, all taking up space and people trying to figure out where to plug them in, those kind of things. So trying to guard the human experience of technology, I think is what it ends up being a lot. You could call it governance, which is like the dirty word for it. But I like to think of it more as what we really want to do is make sure we don't get a muddy, messy experience for people. And then also, you know, back ourselves into corners where we can't do things that will help the business because we've built silos uh, in our architecture. So that's kind of the approach we take. And and it is evolving because we're, you know, continuing to grow. But um, that's kind of where we're at in the the journey so far. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a key, right? Like with companies that are scaling. And I mean, right now we have seen trends around serverless technology and everybody's like, well, I want to do a POC. And folks are like, well, let's start with serverless because it's it's great to start off, right? And then suddenly when the economics of scale come in, you you start debating if that makes sense. And I don't yeah. know if you know about this. Uh, Amazon recently uh, came out and said that, hey, we are going back from, you know, serverless to monolithic for Amazon Prime. And, you know, and there's this whole idea of build versus buy. How do you, like being a chief architect, make that decision where once you see a POC, you're like, well, we've seen enough at this point. Uh, what do we do now? Do we continue on that path of, uh, say, serverless and POC? Or should we go back? Like, how do you tackle that? Yeah, I'd say um, definitely we're we're uh, pushing back as many of the decisions as possible to the teams where it makes sense. But when it is more of an enterprise uh, item, um, I think we're really looking at the the particular technology or the solutions uh, impact and fit into the full like you know enterprise architecture of the organization. Like number one would be like alignment with our principles. Um, which are things like, you know, she's mentioned build by, we have a principle around that. We come back to it if we want. Um, but like being loosely coupled in nature, you know, and composable, um, you know, making sure that we think about, um, we say treat data as an enterprise asset, but can you, um, does this fit from a data perspective? Does it make sense? Um, you know, is it going to be something that will work in terms of, uh, of fitting the overall organization's, uh, architecture? So I think it's a little bit of just, uh, the, the art of looking at, what it is and, you know, does it do a good job at what it's supposed to do? And then does it make sense in light of what we already have? Not overly uh, duplicative. Um, and, you know, and then kind of, uh, yeah, does it feel like it fits? Does it feel like it's going to add value? Does it make sense? Can we can we run and support it with somebody? Like if we adopt it, um, all, all of those kind of questions uh, come into play. Or probably the, the principal evaluation side of it is a big part that we don't do like by writing it down on a piece of paper and like scorecarding it, but it's just sort of like, I think those principles are pretty ingrained in us in the way that we work. So um, they're they're a thing that can help us make sure that we're objective in our evaluation. So I, I think that's how it works. It's, it's a little bit art instead of science still, but um, probably will continue to move towards science as we grow, um, as a lot of things have to. Yeah, awesome. So I'm just taking a pivot a little bit to some of the things that we were discussing, right? Over the 19 years, right? And, you know, cloud has become a big integral section of, uh, infrastructure and even you know the operating budget for a company uh, and uh, so I know uh, that for you cloud first is something that you have recently started adopting how did that come about you know how how long did that take uh, uh, you know and what really changed where you were like well it seems like cloud is uh, something integral to um, you know our growth and you know substantial revenue growth as well yeah um I think there are a couple uh, things that got us into cloud. This is in that eight years ago ish uh, time frame. Definitely, um, 
needing to be able to do things that we could not do with our traditional data center very easily, um, horizontal scale, <laughs> for example, uh, with our customer, uh, you know, digital experience that we launched, the Chick-fil-A One app and, you know, all the other online uh, properties and all the identity, you know, management, all the things that went with that. So I think that was definitely a, a really huge impetus for needing cloud. It was like we, we broke our ability to execute in the way that we executed historically. So that's really good, <laughs> a good impetus for change. Um, and then uh, probably very similar story would be in the analytics space where up until cloud analytics equaled like Oracle, you know, enterprise data warehouse database with, you know, ETL loads going in every night and people hammering it all day, you know, running queries um, and struggling to do a lot of the more sophisticated things that they wanted to be able to do. So like step one for us into cloud and analytics was Redshift. Um, that actually got us doing a lot of like custom software development around like, you know, data pipelining, um, you know, and, and managing some of our key data sets, like our restaurant um, transaction stream. It used to be just a file actually, and then it moved to a stream probably within the first year or two, something like that. Um, so I think those were like the, the impetus for uh, actual adoption. And then our strategy very quickly was, yeah, to do this, we can actually like, instead of having operational teams manage infrastructure, you know, like everybody used to do, and, you know, sending off an email or filling out a form to request like a virtual machine. It's like, hey, you can get a team that knows how to work with APIs and they can spin up their own, you know, environment, um, you know, following some standards. And we ended up automating a lot of that, but spin up an Amazon account and, you know, go from idea to working and building something, you know, in the first day or two, a um, little bit of design work as well. But um, that was, I think, really compelling when we could do that. And now, of course, that can be taken too far. And I think we, we got to a point where we probably had engineering teams that were overburdened with the number of things they need to be concerned with, you know, building their app and building features and maintaining and operating their app and thinking about infrastructure and, you know, patching uh, nodes and things like that. So, like, I think you can definitely go too far um, if you don't do enough automation, at least, and, and don't really invest in things like your pipelines and stuff like that to make that step easy. Um but yeah, that, that was really the thing that that kicked us over. And once we got there and saw some of that value in the customer and analytics space, we really started ramping up, um, you know, product teams who start hiring engineers. Uh, and for a while there, it felt like every couple months there was like a new product team that we're spinning up and staffing and they were building things in the cloud, you know, in their own environment at their own speed and pace, you know, doing agile DevOps, et cetera and uh and delivering value and uh i think that was contagious and it just grew from there um i think we're you know probably 80 80 plus teams um just guessing uh across chick-fil-a maybe more um trying not to exaggerate but uh now we've, we've got quite a bit and um cloud is definitely the first choice uh really probably the only choice um for us uh and where we build you know pretty much everything so um, SaaS solutions are great too. And we don't really care where they, where they run if they're SaaS, but uh, in terms of custom software development and things we're building for ourselves, it's really cloud first. And then the other thing would be the edge, uh, if it makes sense to be running in a restaurant, but we can get to that uh, later if you want. Yeah, no, that's awesome. You know, so I was just thinking like, I personally, like when I started using cloud, I was mostly AWS and even my function, I do focus on AWS stuff a lot and the ease and the simplicity that, you know, infrastructure in the form of a SaaS solution that the cloud provided was in, intense, you know. For me, like I wanted to do something, I would just go spin up a compute machine and start doing things on it. 
rather than yeah. running it on my Windows machine and struggling to see how the prototype worked. But at some point, that changed with, of course, Kubernetes coming in, containers and dockers, that also helped. Uh, but in the context of, you know, what you do at Chick-fil-A, I was just trying to think about with the growth that the company is expecting, definitely cloud brought in a lot of value, right, for you to have the scale uh, to, you know, innovate. Uh, but when you start designing things and even looking it out in the future, what are some of the key features that you are really looking for as you design, you know, new software or uh, look at designing infrastructure architecture? Yeah, I mean, um, definitely there's like some super obvious ones to me, like um, everything we look at, you know, API <laughs> enablement is like a uh, no brainer, right? Like um, you can't, can't do a lot without that. I've tried to do, you know, integration even for like a friend's nonprofit thing before on a system with like no APIs and you're just like, it's so frustrating. Um, to me, that's like obvious, but like you got to do the basic stuff well for anything else to matter. Um, so that's huge. Um, definitely, uh, you know, when we think about things that we buy, um, our strategy tends to be, we're looking for, we're looking to build things that are unique. It's a unique problem we have, or there's something about the way our business works where the thing doesn't really fit. And then we're looking to like pick things off the shelf for as many of the other cases uh, as possible. So, um, you know, looking for, if we're building, we're looking for components, I think that give you like a good solid foundation, like not overly complex, but like reasonable abstractions, um, you know, that, that, uh, make things, I guess, more like consumable and, and understandable. Um, and, and really like also we're, I think we're starting to trend into some of the things that just make life easier. <laughs> um, like you can do anything you want, you know, with a cloud account pretty much like given time. But, um, but a lot of that work is not necessarily the thing that differentiates us. So like, we don't need to be the world's greatest at like ingress or messaging or whatever else. So trying to pick things that are, um, you know, that are services that we can build on top of and still, um, you know, sort of express the uniqueness of Chick-fil-A and some of the solutions, but also not spend a lot of energy and time on things that maybe we can, we can get elsewhere, even if they're like part of composing that solution. So I'd actually say that like building something completely from scratch is super rare for anyone, right? Like most people right. are going to be stitching together open source with some custom stuff. They may, the actual like business logic of their app is probably unique to them, but they're building on some kind of foundation. Um, we're all kind of like benefiting from all the stuff the community is doing. Um, and so, you know, we're the same. We, uh, we try and leverage all that stuff um, and kind of build like layers, uh, you know, that make sense and that are still like reasonable, if not easy uh, to operate in the process. Um, I don't know. How about you? How, how do you think about it? No, I, I think in a similar way, you know, whenever I am trying to design something and previously, you know, I used to like put stuff together, but then as APIs start coming, as we start thinking about microservices and even nanoservices, right? Like my philosophy also personally is building things in a way that they can be reused across multiple teams. And, you know, it, you know, making changes is way more easier. You don't have to bring things down, you know, uh, Apart from these things, like I personally, when I'm and the kind of situations I've been in, typically I have to also consider, uh, you know, scale or high availability and avoiding downtimes. And my experience was, you know, working uh, with lots of use cases where, you know, IoT use cases where infrastructure couldn't go down. So I've worked with a company where, you know, they had pipelines where oil is getting generated, right? And they had to get the telemetry data. And you're talking about tens of thousands of transactions happening per second. And you need it scale and you can make you have to make sure that data is correct because it can affect the gas prices next day. 
uh, you know, uh, affecting how much I have to pay. Uh, you know, so it's a critical business. So, so the ability to yeah. for the infrastructure to scale, for the app to scale, and you know, high availability in avoiding downtimes was equally important in the you know the design process. But I do agree with you the the whole idea of compostability or uh, you know the Lego based design uh, philosophy is I think the right approach, and I I don't think we should be going back from that. You know. That's how I look. Yeah. Uh, um, so just based on that, you know, I, I know you have different systems that you work on as well at Chick-fil-A, like POS system. And you have to think about supply chain and getting the right ingredients and stuff to each of these, uh, you know, restaurants or, uh, you know, the locations that you have. And then you have mobile apps and all these different. How important is, uh, you know, scale, high availability or zero round time uh, to, to different use cases? And maybe you can take one of those and kind of help uh you know, folks who are listening who are interested in designing similar systems to kind of think about how to approach them. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the most obvious and easy to understand for listeners would be uh, what we do from a Chick-fil-A one um, backend perspective. So that's tangible, right? It's a mobile app. You can order from it. You can manage your profile. There's loyalty program, all of those kinds of things. And that's like super important to scale because we do things like the, uh, the campaign that we've had the um, the last couple of weeks that generate huge amounts of traffic, even beyond what's normal for us, you know, during like a lunch rush or something like that. So right. some of these marketing campaigns are the biggest drivers, um, especially when there's something free <laughs> involved. Uh, they drive huge amounts of uh, of traffic. So uh, downtime in those scenarios is is really bad because one, it's a bad experience for the customer, um, and two. It generally, it generally results in lost revenue, right? Like if we don't, if we can't take those orders, maybe people just come to the store and go inside. We, we don't really know that, but um, probably some people we lose for that particular occasion, you know, which, which we don't like. So we want to be uh, up all the time, right? Um, so definitely that would be a place where those are really important factors. Um, we've pretty much always been uh, at least like in Amazon multi-AZ, uh, in all of our solutions uh, from the beginning. Uh, but things like this are where, you know, thinking about uh, multi-region, either active-active or active-passive, um, you know, type solutions make a lot of sense. Um, so uh, that's, I think that's one big thing in the in the customer-facing domain for us that's different than a lot of our other systems is it has to scale in those ways. All our stuff that faces our operators and team members kind of has like a known load. It doesn't change a lot. There's nothing that's going to create huge bursts. Um, we probably get actually a lot, our, our second biggest place for scale is probably actually IOT telemetry <laughs> data coming from the store through our, uh, our IOT and edge compute platform, um, you know, as opposed to any of our other like sort of business systems. So I think customers number one and then, then that would be number two. But, uh, yeah, in those cases, I think it's like, you know, there's a bunch of different tiers to it and depending on what you're trying to accomplish, you know, and how much persistence is important or, you know, um, if you're using some sort of like streaming ingest, like a Kinesis or something in Amazon or like yeah. some sort of queuing architecture, um, you know, do you care about replay? Uh, if something happened and you failed in processing, like you need to jump back in the stream, are you okay to process once, you know, and say, if we fail while processing, you know, we'll either handle it or, you know, do some sort of acknowledgement that we've actually successfully pulled the message from a queue. There's all those kinds of things that, um, you know, depending on how critical each phase of, the architecture and the associated process behind it, um, you know, actually are, you, you might make different decisions and different trade-offs. So I think like, you know, um, lots of nodes, you know, clustered, something like Kubernetes doesn't have to be, but something like that 
is sort of like a no-brainer for a critical high-scale application. You know, Kubernetes scales container, uh, you know, container applications really, really nicely. So for all the things that uh, people hate on it for lately and the complexities and all those things, it does that really well, <laughs> um, yes. really, really well. And uh, it gives yeah. you a lot of uh, power. So I think that kind of thing is a no-brainer. I think at least being in, in multiple data centers is a complete no-brainer. Hopefully, you know, spread out across multiple regions in some sort of uh, form. And then it's, it starts getting into the application components, uh, you know, beyond maybe like a single container. And like, so what's your persistent strategy? How are you going to scale that? Um, is it going to be multi-region? You know, how do you deal with all the problems that come with that? Um, right. The cap theorem stuff and all that. Um, so and same for messaging, you know, same for anything. Um, so yeah, I think it, uh, it ultimately depends a little on the nature of the solution, but those are some of the components I think that are pretty, pretty critical. And then, I mean, one more would just be the, uh, you know, we talked about microservices and the Amazon switch from serverless and microservices to monolith. Um, I think in a lot of cases, there's a lot of, there's a lot of merit to that. Um, because all of those, you know, microservices, nano services, whatever, those are dependencies that you have to hold in your head and understand how is this all going to operate together, reason about if they break, you know, or build automation around. I think the more pieces you have just by nature, the more complex it actually is. Um, it may be needed to actually accomplish, you know, the, uh, the solution to the problem that you're facing. But like keeping that, I think, to a minimum is actually the right way to do it. Like minimum number of services to actually accomplish the goal. And as the problem changes or your scale grows and you have to carve things off, that's a perfectly good thing to do. But like not jumping to too many services too quickly, I think is something that would benefit a lot of uh, a lot of teams. So it may, be, may not be like single artifact monolith if you're of any significant size, but it probably isn't 150 services that are all interacting with each other in real time to accomplish anything um, unless you're, you know, you have a really unique, really, really big problem. Um, and I don't think most people probably run across those on a daily basis. Right. Yeah. I was just thinking, like when you were talking, like the amount of experience you have, real life experience dealing with these problems definitely is uh, clear uh, now that you have a chief architect role, you know, you definitely know what you're talking about because you experience <laughs> those things. Uh, and, you know, I, for everyone listening, you know, Brian's got a fantastic Substack, which has got a really cool name, which is called, uh, you know, the Chamber of Tech Secrets. Uh, where you have some fascinating, uh, you know, blogs around different topics that, you know, you can go in and even, you know, unravel all these things that we're talking about. I mean, even a podcast sometimes doesn't do it justice unless we're talking for six hours, right? Uh, right, right. Uh, so definitely go check that out. And you've written some really great blogs, even on your, uh, you know, Medium blog post for Chick-fil-A. Um, and from there, I wanted to like uh, go back to some of the things that you were mentioning, that is, the retail edge piece, which is was fascinating for me when I started reading about it after I spoke to you, um, you're talking about edge compute in in the locate in location in restaurant. When we're talking about a Kubernetes uh, infrastructure uh, set up in a restaurant, so uh, help the people who are listening understand uh, like what is this project and how what led to this and what value is it bringing on a day to day basis to uh, you know folks uh, at Chick Fil A. Yeah. Great question. So yeah, edge computing can mean a lot of things. Um, so we really mean it depends where you where you position yourself. But if you position yourself in the cloud, you can refer to it as the far edge. Um, and for us, that is a living uh, in each of our restaurants. So uh, what we have really fast is a, a three node, um, you know, Intel Nook uh, Kubernetes cluster. It's K threes actually uh, running on on top of that. Um, so uh, we we did a bunch of things with that stack that you know we can come back to if there's time, but 
uh, try to make it as like zero touch as possible for uh, the restaurant. So basically it's like you plug it in and everything happens by it reaching out and talking to like our control plane stuff in the cloud. Um, so uh, jumping over to like why we did that, um, it really was born out of uh, going back to the start of our conversation. We talked about that capacity challenge. Um, we had a, a, a thing we call a big move, um, a thing that we try and rally around um, across the organization that we're all trying to disproportionately focus our energy on that was around restaurant systems capacity, not technology systems, but actually just like, you know, producing food, you know, bagging food, um, you know, taking orders, et cetera. So, and, you know, supply chain, all those kinds of things. There's been a whole bunch that came out of that. But one of the things was we started to pursue uh, making all of the the devices that we have, especially starting in the kitchen, because that's where a lot of capacity constraints exist. Uh, we started getting those things to be connected. Um, I say connected and not smart because we intentionally decided that we didn't want them to be smart. What we wanted them to do was basically just collect telemetry and then have the ability to take commands and push that out. So there were solutions though, where it was like, well, we need these things to interact with each other in some way. We need to do some sort of like algorithm thing, may not be sophisticated, just like mash the data together, evaluate something, make a decision and display something to a person so they can take action. Like, where are we going to do that? So I remember somebody talking about trying to send the real-time stream of sales transactions like to a fryer. It's like, no, 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 no. We don't want to do that. Instead, let's figure out a place that we can um, we can collect all this data. So let's get the transaction data coming in. Let's get all the telemetry coming from the equipment. We'll make the decision somewhere externally. Um, and if the equipment needs to know something, we'll push it back to it. And so, you know, where do you put that? You need some sort of infrastructure. Um, we explored, you know, cloud first, but really just wasn't viable, uh, based on latency availability. Um, I'll come back to that in a second, but, uh, it just didn't make sense for us. So we went with a, uh, ultimately what's now called an edge compute solution. Like, uh, it wasn't really much of a term at the time. I actually read like terms like fog computing back then, which is completely dead. It seems like now, um, but we ended up, uh, with an edge architecture to have a place basically to mirror the cloud paradigm as much as was possible. So container-based applications, um, you know, deployed uh, to each of the restaurants and able to consume um, telemetry data, all of it pretty much over MQTT and then like API calls out to the cloud or to other apps internally. And then, you know, do things, make decisions and then, um, you know, drive some behavior in the restaurant. So like an early example, uh, we have an article on the blog about it. It was called AHA, which was Automated Folding Assistant. And uh, its job was basically, it's, it's kind of a cool solution. It's got like a 3D camera sitting above where they check in a pan of chicken. So like it can kind of count and get a, an estimate, usually pretty accurate, of how many pieces of chicken are in the pan. And we know like, you know, there's 12 uh, fillets in breakfast pan one. And it auto manages like the timers uh, that we use for food quality. Um, so the team members don't have to think about doing that. They don't have to like go push buttons or any of those kinds of things. Um, it was just one of those like, like old school approaches before that didn't really, uh, scale very well and didn't get used very often. So to try and help understand where we were with food quality to make sure that it stays great, um, and, and make it easier on the team members, uh, we built that solution on, on top of this architecture. And then there's been some other sense. Uh, and then it's also the hub for like collecting all of the data that exists, uh, in restaurant, right. whether it's. Uh, very soon it'll be like point of sale included, um, you know, directly. So it'll be sending, uh, sending things through that channel, you know, as well as all the the equipment, it's grown to a bunch of devices, 
think we get over a billion uh, data points a month um, wow. of restaurant telemetry. So not insane, but it's a pretty good amount. Um, and uh, you can see so what you're doing here in this case is, and it's fascinating because I, I love uh, this kind of stuff, is you have telemetry data coming from, say, fryers or you know what's mm-hmm. going on um, and different devices and equipments to the you know infrastructure that you've set up with K3. And then uh, and that's coming through the MQTT protocol. And then this data all is pushed to the cloud. Is that what's happening eventually? Yeah. So if we're in an online situation, like network is up, which is most of the time, um, then, yeah, we would be exfilling data uh, out to the cloud. We uh, we send pretty much all the MQTT events out. And then um, when it comes to like apps that run at the edge, it could be something that's built by the core like platform team. Like they've got a uh, an off service that lives there so they can do some uh, tricky stuff with like resigning tokens if we're offline, um, you know, and MQTT itself. And so they've got a series of services, but like AHA is built by another one of our teams and we have another team uh, like smart equipment ecosystem stuff. So those teams are building their own container-based applications and the platform team is providing them tooling to basically get that in. And then we also, you know, if, if you're actually going to operate anything in 3000 locations, you need the uh, sort of the system telemetry info as well. So you're like uh, metrics collected by Prometheus and uh, logging in certain situations. Like we pretty much um, stay in error only logging unless we flip a switch for a period of time at a restaurant to get a debug and then flip it back. So we do some things like that, collect that data and send that back out as well. But yeah, essentially we get back to the cloud to do like analytics across multiple restaurants or all restaurants, um, you know, stored in our data lake longer term. Um, you know, to, to get other value out of it. But we also use it in real time in the restaurant to drive experiences, which is why the, uh, the availability side is important because there's no, if, this is real, like if these solutions are good and they actually make the team members' jobs easier and they come to depend on them, we really need to make sure that they're mostly available during, you know, uh, business hours. Yeah. And um, while internet connections are pretty good, we, we just have a lot of stores and, you know, Cables get cut while they're doing construction or, you know, providers have outages. Uh, we're resilient to that stuff and we're as available as our local network or if we have any issues with, you know, a Kubernetes cluster or something, but we're pretty fast at, at fixing those. So it's pretty available, which is, uh, was one of the other key design goals uh, and why we did that versus trying to use uh, cloud directly. Oh, that's awesome. The, the only other scenario would be like a Chick-fil-A, you know, person working there wants to charge his phone and just detaches the socket yeah. <laughs> it's happening. It's happening. Yeah. We've had them unplugged, but there are three of them and they're, they're all on different switches and, and things like that. So they, the cluster stays up, but the node uh, goes bye-bye when that happens. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I love, I love uh, when stuff is put together in cluster, right? Even with Cockroach, right? Like one of the most fascinating things is that we, we provide a consistent database that which is split, split across multiple nodes in a cluster across multiple regions, right? So um, yeah. the scenarios uh, like, where this can be used is always exciting for me to hear. Uh, so we were talking about data, right? And you know, as we close out, I just wanted to ask a few more questions around. Um, you talked about data being critical with you know telemetry uh, information coming in. Tell me more about your database landscape and how do you go about you know choosing uh, this data stack uh, for what or where the data needs to be stored and the analytics piece of it. I know you mentioned Redshift, but there's also been a big player in the market like Snowflake and. Um, have you ever come across, you know, uh, you know, distributed SQL is a need for, uh, you know, your requirements and things like, so how do you go about that? Yeah, it, it definitely varies a lot, like team to team. So, I mean, I'd say the centers of gravity that we tend to have are um, a lot of Postgres. Um, 
So that's probably what most teams that are doing like SQL-based uh, databases uh, have on the back end for their applications or even like, uh, I won't say analytics, but like the reporting side of analytics. So the, I want a fast, you know, uh, fast answer to a known question, um, that kind of stuff. Uh, a lot of Postgres or, or like an Amazon Aurora, um, you know, it's Postgres compliant. So got a number of those things um, that, that are out there. Uh, definitely a lot of like uh, DynamoDB um, when it's NoSQL. I mean, uh, in terms of Amazon services, like a couple of those early ones, EC2 obviously and uh, S3 and a bit like DynamoDB are just, uh, I mean, so good in my opinion. Like there's everything's going to have its limitations, but it's, you know, it's been great. So we use that quite a bit. Um, on the uh, the actual analytics side, um, like we've got a, a Databricks uh, footprint that's newer, uh, maybe a year old or so. Um, I, one of the guys on my team, uh, his name's Aaron Reese. He's actually, uh, spoken about that recently at a Databricks event. So people might be able to Google and find that if they're, uh, if they're interested. Um, but that's part of the, the architecture as well. Redshift's still there, uh, in the mix. And then we're always, um, we're always looking at the landscape. So we're doing some, um, exploration with, uh, Supabase, which is like the Firebase clone. Um, you know, it's Postgres, uh, compatible as well from a, right. a syntax perspective. So that's cool. Um, we've looked at cockroach, uh, as well in the past and done some playing around with that. Um, so it, it, at a team level, it kind of depends a little bit on the nature of the problem. Um, and, and probably to some degree, like what the engineers on that team have experience with and are comfortable with, because they probably do a better job, you know, uh, running technology a, that they have lots of experience with, even if maybe there's something that's slightly better than that new one that they've never touched before. So like that comes into play, but you know, it's not the only factor. And sometimes it makes sense to learn something new and change. Um, but yeah, we're, we're kind of always evolving there. Um, I'm sure I've missed tons that we're, we actually use in like isolated pockets, but, um, like but that's a bunch of the stuff we use. I was going to say, you have like 80 teams, right? Uh, at least you're talking about your work. Yeah, at least. Um, I think there's over 30 in our customer facing space and, right. you know, pro- probably, yeah, probably easy 50 beyond that, uh, if, if not more. So maybe it could be a hundred, um, but it's, it's a lot. So, and probably all of them have some sort of database uh, of some kind. Um, so uh, we do run Postgres Edge uh, in all the stores. So that's a, a big footprint of Postgres because that backs our MQTT broker. And uh, we also offer it uh, as, as a service for uh, persisting data for short time periods for some of the applications that exist at the edge as well. So a lot of Postgres, DynamoDB, Redshift. Um, you know, we've played the Snowflake, though. Databricks we have. we got all kinds of stuff. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big landscape. I know. I mean, I, I, I know this is like a can opening kind of a question for which we might need a second podcast. And I know we, we wanted to keep it short for the first one, right, uh, Brian? I mean, I, I wanted to ask you, like, as we kind of come to the close, right? Like, are there any upcoming projects that you're really passionate about or plans you're excited about? that you want to share with uh, the listeners that they can kind of follow you and or ch- check out and different portals, you know, or places. Yeah. Um, I mean, in, in terms of things we're, we're working on, or I'm like playing with personally, like I know it's the, it's kind of cliche now, but the generative AI thing I think is really uh, interesting. Um, yeah. So uh, I've been doing a lot of like tinkering with uh, just playing with open AI, um, you know, API for embeddings and, you know, chat completions and things like that. Um, I've, I haven't I haven't decided what I'm actually doing yet, but I think like there's a bunch of potential uh, little side projects that would be fun to do, or you know, make your own little assistant just to go through the uh, the exercise. Um, I think all the all the 
chaining stuff is really interesting too, like Ling Chain and things like that. Um, so that's, that's kind of the stuff that I think is interesting to play with right now. And uh, a lot of things I haven't done, you know, hands-on before, but it's like, honestly, pretty easy. I mean, if you can call an API and like, you know, read some code and start tweaking it and then do experimentation to kind of understand anything that you didn't understand, like it, it comes together pretty rapidly, which is pretty cool. So I think I'm excited that uh, there's like a bit of the democratization of some of the AI capability via API uh, to like anyone who can write code or even people who just have an idea and they need to ask like, you know, a, a, a chat engine, a, a chat GPT, like, how do I write code to do this? Like, if you know how to ask the right questions, you can get the right answers, at least to, to a pretty high degree of uh, success. So I think that's really, really cool and will really change the way that the the tech world works in a lot of ways but I don't think it's going to change everything either. Like we're, you're still going to need a good architecture mindset. You're still going to need to know what good code is. You're still going to have to know how to operate systems. You still have to know how to pick a database. You still have to know how to use a database. It can help you with all the syntax, but you still got to know the stuff. So I just see it as a, a cool force multiplier going forward and don't want to be left behind. So I'm, uh, I'm hands-on as well and, and learning. No, that's good. I mean, I'm uh, we are part of the same community is what I would say. Like uh, in my sure. free time, that's all I'm doing. I'm testing some stuff with Langchain, and yeah. stuff uh, as well. I think it's fascinating. Cool. Uh, I don't know if you know, like uh, yesterday, um, OpenAI uh, Open came out and said, okay, the browser plugin is no more available. I think they found like an error uh, or an issue where some fraud could happen. So that's yeah. gone uh, for a few days. Uh, so it's a bummer because I was using that. <laughs> Just trying to use it. Here's one fun, uh, really fun use case of how I'm using it. And me and my wife, we're, we're on this uh smoothie uh you know diet based plan you know so what we did was we came we asked ChatGPT give us a 21 day smoothie weight loss program or whatever that is and it, it came up with a proper plan and then i used the instacart plugin that is available on um ChatGPT and it got me an ingredients list with a link and when i click on that link it takes me straight to aldi or you know uh yeah. sprouts uh, where i can directly get so when i looked at it i was like this is fascinating because now you're looking at AI going more than being just a productivity tool, right? Mm-hmm. So it's fascinating. And so we'll come back and we'll we'll dive into this. Uh, again, I just wanted to say, um, you know, as we close, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you in the Big Ideas in App Architecture podcast. I mean, your knowledge about things and what you worked on over 20 years is fascinating, you know. Uh, I am going to say, everyone who's listening to the podcast, please go follow Brian on his LinkedIn. He does some amazing stuff. He shares a lot. He has this attitude to give and enable the community. And and are there any other places, Brian, that folks can follow you on other than your, you know, tech, uh, uh, you know, secrets, uh, Substack and your LinkedIn, as well as a blog? Are there any other places they can follow you and kind of uh, learn from you is what I would say. If you can. Yeah, those are probably the main ones. Uh, the Substack is brianchambers.substack.com, um, Chamber of Tech Secrets one. So uh, that's a great place. And then I'm on Twitter as well, uh, B-R-I-C-H-A-M-B. Um, not quite as active, but I'm, I'm there. So, um, this would probably the main time to be on Twitter right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to try to minimize the, uh, the socials and the distractions and the, you know, the need for constant dopamine hits every moment of every day at the moment. So trying to figure out how to get back to being like a normal human who can focus on something for, for more than a few minutes without, uh, multitasking or, or changing. So that's one of my, uh, my personal quests at the moment that I'm, uh, I'm early in, but working on it. Yeah. No, I think most of us who have been uh, through this over the last decade with social media are going through some sort of a detox and a 
uh, kind of cleanup process. So, but yeah. again, that's a struggle for all of us, you know, uh, but I thank, thank you again uh, for kind of sharing that. Uh, but overall, Brian, thank you once again for hopping on this call. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, you know, I look forward to more conversations with you and, you know, following all the amazing things that you're working on. So thank you again. Yeah. It was my pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. And yeah, let's do it again soon.